Welcome, fellow brave believers. This is Kingdom Cast here in Kingdom in Context. I'm Sean Griffin. This is the podcast where we search for knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of His Word and this world so we can better relate His Word to this world. So thanks for joining us, everyone. Looks like we've already got a lively chat. I just want to say hi to a few people who are already here. Jason Oran, welcome. NEG, Carrie Foster, Jay Savoy. Let me see here. It looks like uh, Kingdom Truther, Kelly J, Elwickens25, Light of the Hill Ministries. Thanks for being here, everybody. Uh, West Blaze Music is here. Clinton Linhardt. There's a whole bunch of folks that's already here. <laughs> well, we've got a fun topic tonight. I'm excited about it. Uh, this is going to be us discussing one of the biggest problems that I've seen in my life um, that the church teaches something that statistically is the fundamental backdrop that leads people to abandon their faith and go towards either secular humanism or agnosticism or atheism. And it's, it's destructive. So I want to try to address it tonight and hopefully we'll, uh, um, we'll learn something along the way as we do. So again, thank you everyone for being here. If this is your first time, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. If you've never subscribed to us, it's easy. Just hit that red button, subscribe, tap the bell for notifications so that it lets you know whenever we put out new uh, content. And that's, uh, that's the goal. So I just want to, we want to thank everyone that is our Patreon supporters. We appreciate you. And all of us, all of those of you who've supported us in other ways, um, all those ways are in the link description. If you want to see us keep doing this and keep going, you want to, uh, if, if something here blesses you and it's at the goodness of your heart that you want to do that, that's up to you. We really, really appreciate you guys. It's really helped us do what we're doing today. So we're just, uh, thank you so much from the bottom of our heart. Um, also, guys, I just want to make sure everyone knows that if you go to my recommended channels on my playlist, you'll be able to see uh, two channels there right below. Well, there's three channels there, right? So I, I would love for you to subscribe to all three of them. Uh, the top one is Hanging on His Words. It's our buddy Ken Heidebrecht, and he has a wonderful channel, does great biblical teachings with great graphics um, and animation. And so I highly recommend subscribing to his channel. Right below it is New Jerusalem Media and Kingdom Cast. And those are two channels that we are responsible for that we're actually doing side stuff with. And, and we're, we're trying to get those built up as well. And specifically Kingdom Cast, because that one is where I'm eventually going to do this, this podcast that I do Monday through Thursday. So if you would, if you're watching this, please go over there, subscribe real quick. And then uh, you can even do it from most of the time from your phone or from your laptop without even leaving the broadcast. And that way, um, we because the reason why I need that one to be built up is YouTube will not let me do this live stream podcast from that channel until I have at least a thousand subscribers. So we're about halfway there. If you guys would just do a quick, quick favor, run over there, subscribe to that, and then we can start um, broadcasting these these live streams from there as soon as we get approval for them. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. So thank you for doing that. Um, so let's see here. Everyone, as always, um, thank you for uh, for your support for us. Thank you guys for showing up in the chat uh, to interact and talk. And what I always want to do uh, with these live streams is I'm, I'm usually prepared either a guest to speak or, or for myself to show some information and some stuff. And so that's tonight probably going to take up like the first 15 or 20 minutes because I'm going to be going over this. You know the title topic of the video.
All right. So I'm going to go right to it real quick and we'll jump over here to some of the information that I prepared. Now, did you guys see, did everyone see the, the, uh, hang on one second. Let's see the opening image that I had before we started the show. So go ahead and I'm going to screen share this. So I would like to hear from everyone in the comment section who's who's watching right now. Put in the comments what you think this is about. <laughs> what is that when you see? Yeah, Clayton Linhart, I know it's choppy. Like I said, we have a, a windstorm, so um, I can't help it. Unfortunately, it's been messing with their Internet connection. All right. So what is this image? We got Luke and Darth Vader, and then you've got um, the girl from The Wizard of Oz behind them. And you've got the phrase, there's no place like home. So put in the chat, what do you think this reminds you of? What What is this? What's wrong with this picture, basically? I'd love to hear from everybody. <laughs> Light of the Hill Ministries make, I'm pretty sure it's a joke. It's about Luke and Dorothy being related to Vader. No, <laughs> no, that would be a plot twist. That would be definitely different, right? She, uh, somewhere over the rainbow, she went to the Death Star um, and found out her he was her father also. All right. So we're going to be talking about um, the idea of this. So what's unique about this is that if we took this same concept with Dorothy, her saying that iconic phrase, there's no place like home, and we put it in the proper setting, now what do you feel? So here it is. She's standing behind Vader and Luke Skywalker. And she's saying there's no place like home. Doesn't feel right, does it? But you put it where it's supposed to be and suddenly all of it makes sense to the context, right? So that's what we're going to look at tonight, okay? We're going to look at how a predominant teaching in Christianity has brought us to a place where the words that we're hearing being preached do not make sense to what we're reading in the book. Okay, so let's go. Uh, let's keep let's keep rolling with it. College classrooms across the country, right? There's a there was a um, survey that was done recently, and I think it was 2018. They said um, 19 million students attended public and private colleges in 2018, and then the Pew Research Center performed a religious landscape study in 2014 four years earlier, they, to see the reasons why, in their own words, that 71% of Christian youths leave their faith when they get to college. Guys, can anyone do the math in the, in the chat for me? What is 71% of approximately 19 million? What is 71% of 19 million? Anyone quick with math? Anyone, anyone know what that number might equate to? What is it, like 15 million? Think about this. Every year, approximately 15 million kids between the ages of 18 and 22 is your most predominant age for college. Yes, I know a lot of people go to college at later times in their life, but as far as the most predominant uh, predominant age, 18 to 22, 71% lose their faith when they go to college. There's a huge issue here, right? There's a big problem. So the first answer, uh, West Blaze put the put these the number there. So 71% of 19 million is 13,490,000. 13 million, guys, 13 million right? 13 million. I want you to remember that. That sounds like a big number. It is a big number. It's a huge number. Every year, kids 
that go away from their parents. These are raised in a Christian household. These are, these are kids that were raised with the sense of believing in God and having faith. They abandon that concept when they go to college, 13 and a half million of them every year. Now I'm stressing this because it's going to matter when we get down a few, a few slides here in a minute, because you're going to, you're going to realize, Oh, wait a minute. That's right. I've heard this argument before and I never had real numbers to put to it. So guys tonight, like I always try to do, I'm trying to give you tools when you're having conversations with people about the topic that we're, we're going to be discussing tonight. You have the tools You can go back and watch these slides and you can look at this to have the actual statistics and the numbers of what this means in reality, to put it in concrete terms with the person you're speaking with. So you can't, you're not just having a, um, a conversation with no concreteness, right? You can bring it home for the person you're speaking with and you can be like, Hey, 13 million are swayed by this type of teaching. So let's go look at it. Okay. It, it continues to say that the, now actually what I'm reading here, guys, is snippets from an article. And I'm going to show you who wrote that article here at the end. Okay. But this information in the article is super important. All right. But what's going to, what's going to matter is who actually is writing this article I'm reading from. So it says the first answer that young people gave for leaving the church was that they just don't believe. Startlingly, 49% of those who call themselves religiously raised that a lack of belief led them to move away from religion. This response was echoed by 82% of atheists, 63% of agnostics, and 37% of those who believe in nothing in particular. What was the word that many of the respondents used to explain their lack of belief? It was science. Others used phrases like common sense, logic, or a lack of evidence. Okay. And what you're going to see, though, is the words, concepts like common sense and logic are based off of scientific conclusions. This is where people will get their underpinning for what they call common sense or logic. Just like we looked about last Monday night with Matt Dillahunty, who's an athe a profound atheist who has a lot of followers. And we looked at his reasoning process of what he considered the fundamental reasoning within himself. And when he thinks about God, that's what he considers logical or commonsensical. All right. So lack of evidence, that's terminology that directly relates to science as well. So we're going to talk about the big one that is science. And we're going to look at what type of science. So here it says, here's some of the specific responses from young people who participated in the study in regards to why they've changed their beliefs in the church, excuse me, in the Bible and in the church. This I'm, I've only got three of them highlighted, but there's five top ones, right? Let's look at the three. The top three is learning about evolution when I went away to college. That was one of the top reasons that was given for why people leave their faith. They learned about evolution when they went to college. Number two, rational thought makes religion go out the window. Number three, lack of any sort of scientific or specific evidence of a creator. How interesting is that, right? So again, what are the what are the parameters for how we're defining evidence? Is the game rigged? Is the scientific game rigged? Let's keep going. It says uh, the fourth reason was I just realized somewhere along the line that I didn't really believe it. Number five, people said I've been doing a lot more learning, studying, and kind of making decisions myself rather than listening to someone else. I would highly contest that last one, right? Because I promise you, had they not been listening to someone else, i.e. their professor or their peer group in college, they would not have abandoned their faith. So that one is kind of self-defeating if you really you know, take it two steps further. It goes on to say, basically, Pew Research found the same thing that we found. A large percent of young people are leaving the church because of questions about science that lead to doubts about God's word. If we can't trust the historical portions of the Bible that deal with our origin, why should we trash the message of Jesus Christ? We've been saying this 
excuse me, why should we trust the message of Jesus Christ? We've been saying this for years now. It's nothing new. Many in the church have taken heed of the research we've done and introduced apologetic teachings. They say it's revolutionizing their church and greatly stemming the loss of the coming generations. Young people are not getting solid Bible-based answers to the skeptical questions of this day. Sadly, it's, unlike that the it's unlikely that the large majority of these young people who are raised in a Christian church, even a theologically conservative church, and then left, ever got solid answers to their doubts and questions. Research from the Barna Group last year revealed that a vast majority of theological conservative pastors believe the Bible speaks to societal issues, but fewer than 10% of these pastors are teaching people what the Bible says on these topics. And these topics, by the way, are the reasons that the the people that were re that uh, participated in the survey said they were leaving their faith. And what was the majority of those reasons are all based around science. It says young people are not getting solid Bible-based answers to the skeptical questions of this day. Many are leaving the church and turning to atheism or some vague idea of spirituality as a result. Who wrote this article I'm reading from, guys? This relates to the title of our video tonight. Who actually wrote this article? Answers in Genesis. And let's, we, let's read what they say in their actual opening little paragraph on the front page of their website. It says, Answers in Genesis is an apologetics ministry dedicated to helping Christians defend their faith and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ effectively. We focus on providing answers to questions about the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis, regarding key issues such as creation, evolution, science, and the age of the earth. All right, guys. <laughs> so let's keep reading. Um, actually, hang on. Let me, let me back up just a minute. All right. So what we've got is we've got an entire ministry dedicated to preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, and we commend them for them, just like we do all the time, right? We commend them for it. But specifically, they found the research leads to what's getting, what's causing people to leave their faith is them going into exposure to quote unquote science in all regards. Now we know guys that if you go into a college uh, collegiate setting, it's you're not just going into a generic science class like you did in seventh grade. Okay. It's not even like chemistry class in your junior or sophomore year of high school. You're going to go into advanced sciences, usually depending on what course that you're looking for as a career path. So if you want to be a doctor, you're going to start studying anatomy and different types of physiology. You know, there's all types of different sciences. Sometimes people go into chemical engineering, so they're going to study a lot more with chemistry and other things. But many, but the average college freshman, 18-year-olds that go into, into school, some, sometimes 19, they go to a humanities class. And did you guys know that evolutionary thought and, and teachings of science are woven into humanities in colleges? So my freshman year, I was sitting in humanities class and the, it was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class. And it was like an hour and a half each day. And the professor gets up there the first three days of the semester. So he devotes three whole days to what I'm about to tell you three whole classes to what I'm about to tell you. Okay. In a semester, which is a, a large dedication of his time for that class, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the first week of humanities, this guy went on a long diatribe and monologue about how we are in a ever expanding space, multiple trillions of stars, planets, 
<laughs> you're right. That whittled down to a more manageable concept of our part of the universe that whittled down to the universe that we specifically live in the solar system that whittled down to how the earth interacts within our solar system that whittled down to the sun and the moon and the stars and the, their relationship with each other that whittled down to the atmosphere, the ecosystem of the earth itself that whittled down to the ecology, the marine biology, the, the plant life and how that interacts with humanity within ourselves that comes down further. He kept descending. He started on the macro. He ends up on the micro where he gets all the way down to a person within their body, within our different um, systems within our body and how that those function based off of blood, which bases off of cellular mitosis and which bases off of DNA and RNA, which goes down on a microscopic level all the way down to the very nucleus of an atom within our, within our cells to which he said, scientists have only determined that there's a spark that is at the core of the nucleus of our atoms. And they don't know where that spark comes from. And after three days, his conclusion on Friday was therefore we come from nothing. And it was all I could do not to shoot my hand up. So, it was just that right there, guys, is just a small example. Now, that is just for beginning freshmen, right? Fresh off the bus, so to speak, right into school. And that's him just trying to, in a story fashion, weave an idea of creation to the point where he leads you to a conclusion that you're not created by a loving Heavenly Father, that there is no purpose for you, because the whole thing assumes that you are an accident and a purposeless universe. Okay. So the rational mind within all of us that knows that our actions equal consequences suddenly think and start to question, well, if I was not created and I am an accident inside of a random purposeless, vast void of space on a rock and just happen to be here, then what does my life matter as far as what I do? If there is no promise of reward or punishment or anything like that, then what does it matter? Now that many of that, especially, you know, at a beginning stage of indoctrination like that, they don't outright tell you that that is what naturally flows from the information that's presented to you. It starts to get you to question your ethical stance on life as far as, well, wait a minute. Well, if there, if there really isn't a God above that, that actually cares about what I do, then should I care about what I do? And the humanist would obviously try to argue, well, yeah, of course, it's it's good for you and those around you. So therefore, yeah, we want to care what you do because it, you're working towards a common goal with others around you in a community. So you you don't need God to tell you what's good and what's not. You, you can observe that within communication with the community that you're in working towards a common goal. But wait a minute, what happens if that community suddenly thinks that this particular people, people group shouldn't exist? Are you going to just fall in line with that community goal? So the problem that we, we run into is without a baseline standard of understanding what right and wrong is and where that authority to make those claims come from, you get what's called secular humanism, right? You get the, the wishy-washiness, right? The, the tossed by the, the, by the sea, um, the old phrase, you know, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything kind of concept. So this is what, uh, hang on a second, let me take this off. This is what as you see on screen, 13,490,000 students are faced with 
and mentality of thinking, wait a minute. So the, the Bible's not correct because what, what they're doing with the story, like I just told you, and that's just in humanity is that you start going into astronomy. It gets even worse. You start going into astrophysics. It gets even worse, right? So that's just astronomy. I was, that's just humanities class. And that's kind of a, a prerequisite. It's like a, a fundamental class that all students have to take before they go off in the specified degree uh, track. So the idea guys is that these children um, are heavily, heavily encouraged to throw away the idea of a specific creation and walk into an idea that they're an accident that's here. And then therefore you shouldn't listen to the Bible, but specifically you shouldn't listen to how you're created within the Bible. So it's taken a couple of generations, but that type of mindset has taken roots. And then those kids, many of the, the 29% that don't lose their faith, that stick with their faith, a small percentage of those, they go off to become pastors. So then what happens once they're a pastor but yet they've already started questioning. They didn't lose their faith, but they've already started questioning the validity of the words in Genesis 1 that describes how they were created. Because that is the abundance of evidence that is thrown at the mind of a young believer. And many times they'll even tell you, you, you don't have to be created. Uh, you don't have to doubt God. You can still believe in God, but the way he described you being created, that's what you should doubt. Instead, I know what it says over here, but that just, you know, it, it, they didn't know how to describe it. It meant to, we meant to, God was trying to explain a heliocentric model, but they didn't, he didn't know how to describe it to people back then because they couldn't handle the information, right? This is an actual theological doctrine that's being passed around churches today. It's called the doctrine of accommodation. So before that, you would call it evolutionary theism, where it's an idea they were trying to take the concept of an evolutionary creation model. And they were trying to fit the narrative and the descriptive words of Genesis 1 in through the lens of that, of that model. So what you have is you have, you have the girl from the Wizard of Oz in the wrong setting, right? You've, you've got the wrong backdrop, the wrong descriptions. You've got the descriptions of a ball in space, the Death Star, instead of a girl that's trying to get back to an earth with a rainbow over it to her family that loves her. You see what I'm saying? So you have a, you have a huge difference in the setting. So let's real, read real quick how important it is to understand the setting that you're in. That makes all the difference to when you had how you read the Bible. So this is actually from um, uh, the writer's digest. It's an article from 2012 uh, by a lady named Courtney Carpenter. And I just, I thought this was a great quick summation of how important it is when you're writing information for other people to understand, you need to, to write the setting appropriately so they know how all the character denouement and the character development is going to take place. They have to understand the setting that that's taking place in. She says, fiction has three main elements, plotting, character, and place or setting. While writers spend countless hours plotting and creating characters and then imagining their character's arc and dilemmas, Often too little attention is paid to the place. This is a fatal mistake. Since the place fiction is staged provides the backdrop against which your drama ultimately plays out. But setting is more than a mere backdrop for action. It's an interactive aspect of your fictional world that saturates the story with mood, meaning, and thematic connotations. Broadly defined, setting is the location of the plot, including the region, the geography, climate, neighborhood, buildings, interiors. Setting along with pacing 
also suggest the passing of time. Places layered into every scene and flashback, built, in, built of elements such as weather, lighting, the season, and the hour. So guys, it is extremely important for us to know the setting which our creator, who's trying to get a message to us, and he introduces the characters in a story in Genesis 1. He also set the majority of the chapter of Genesis 1. He set it up with the setting, the place that the whole story is going to take place in. Let's go and look at see what that possibly would look like. All right. We're going to go through the setting so then you can have the proper picture in your brain to understand the rest of the story when you're explaining this stuff to both fellow believers and also to atheists. Here in Jubilees chapter 2, verse 2 through 3, it says, From the first day he created the heavens, which are above, and the earth and the waters, and all the spirits which served before him, and the angels of the presence, and the angels of sanctification, and the angels of the spirit of fire, and of the angels of the spirit of the winds, and the angels of the spirit of the clouds, and of darkness, and of the snow, and hail, and hoarfrost, and the angels of the voices, and of the thunder, and the lightning, the angels of the spirits of the cold, and heat, and the winter, and the spring, of autumn, and summer, and all the spirits of his creatures, which are in the heavens and on the earth. He created the abysses, and the darkness, eventide, and night, and the light, dawn, and the day, which he hath prepared in the knowledge of his heart, and thereupon he saw his works, and praised him and lauded before him on account of all his works for seven great works he did create on the first day. So guys, real quick, many of you may may uh, get confused here. when it, In the book of Jubilees, when it's talking about the light, dawn, and day, those are idiomatic phrases for the light of immortality that's created in the layers of the heaven above. Those, what the, this Everything that's being created on the first day, like it says the first sentence, from the first day he created the heavens which are above, and the earth and the waters. So that's why when we run over to Genesis and it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the expounded statement upon that. The heavens, and we're going to look at what that is. That's a word that has a definition. And it, we get that definition in great detail in Genesis 1, 6 through 8. It's also in Jubilees and 2nd Ezra and a whole other places. But for the sake of time, I'll, I'll have to give you the basic definition tonight. And it says, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. This is on day two. And God made the firmament, divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. So on day two, he creates the firmament that's over us. But on day one, he creates the firmament, also called the heavens, of everything above this layer. All right, And so we're going to look and see what that looks like, because this is the setting which the entire Bible takes place. So here is a piece of land <laughs> out of nowhere, right? Here's a piece of land that's not placed or set anywhere. But many of you know, especially if you garden, that you can have land. As long as you have the right soil and the water and the seed, you can have land and it can be at any elevation and still produce. So our father knew this too, our heavenly father, our the creator, and he made land above where we live, multiple layers of it, which is why Jubilee says on day one, he created the heavens, which are above. We just got that definition from Genesis one. The word heaven is the word for the firmament, which is a structure. And without, again, without going into great depth, I've done many videos on the firmament. You guys can look up the actual definitions for it. It is a, the Rakia in the Hebrew. It's a solid arched structure. It's called the stereoma in the Greek, and it's the you know, firmamente from the Latin transliteration. And it is basically a solid structure. I've done an entire video on it. You can go to my playlist under the creation playlist, and you can see everything you need to know about heaven, um, or what you need to know about heaven, I think is the title of it. 
And that is a, you can watch a five minute video and I go, I break down the definitions of the words and it's used in Genesis one and other verses. It is a solid structure. And that structure was given a name heaven, just like if you were to build a house out of wood, right? You would say that you used wood, but then once the house is completed, you call it your home. You don't say, oh, that's, that's wood. Right? You put a whole bunch of wood, you create the basement, the, the ground level, the, the two, you know, second and third story levels. You don't go, oh, that's that's um that's wood. That's my that's my wood, right? You know, you would never say anything like that. No, you point to it once it's completed and you say, That's my home. The father used a structure, what scripture describes as a crystalline type style structure, and he made a multi-layered house and he called the structure heaven. The actual structure okay all right let me check something real quick guys okay yeah um at moderators we'll get to questions here in just a minute thanks for sending them over to me and uh we'll get to them just in a minute um so let's keep looking here at what i just wanted to try to put you in your mind right this idea of multiple layers on day one, the first day. So this is the setting we need to understand. Day one, multiple layers above where we live were created. Multiple levels. And the book of Enoch describes heavens above. Multiple levels. Imagine multiple areas of living. Okay. Now, in the book of uh, Apocalypse of Abraham and um, a couple of uh, another place, it talks about there's uh, multiple layers up to seven layers, right? We would live on the bottom, so that means there's six above us. Seven layers. So you have several layers here above us, create on day one. And then our layer was still yet form, unformed. Remember in Genesis 1-2, it says the Spirit of God hovered over the, over the waters. Remember, the earth was made on day one. So this is the bottom layer in this clear, um, murky water, basically, that has no light to it yet, just with the earth that's unformed at the bottom. We're going to put that layer underneath all these other layers on day two because the firmament was made to encapsulate this layer on day two. So all these other layers where the angels live above are already filled out and ready. He did all that in one day. So everything else we see starting from day two forward, day two through day six, that is specifically being done day after day because he could have created everything in a single moment if he wanted to. He could have created all in the first day, but instead he's systematically creating each one for the next five days. And we have all these other layers above us already filled out and ready. Okay. But the, our layer is still just water with unformed earth, dirt in the water. But then on day two, that's what we just read in Genesis 1, 6 8, that He created the firmament, this solid structure that goes into the water that we were, that the unformed earth is in. And that way it creates its own in, in a enclosure, if you will. Okay. And that's why he says he divided the waters from the waters. And then we see that the waters that were divided below they became the seas. So there's no sun and moon, right? This is day two and day three. There's no sun and moon. 
this the the waters before the earth has even been formed and filled out there's just waters but then on day three he goes into preparing the actual land and because it was unformed so now he's preparing the land even though there's no sun and moon yet okay so he's filling out the shrubs and the trees and the seeds and all the different things like it says in genesis 1 verse 9 through 14. And also in day three, and we're going to go over these scriptures in, in Jubilees chapter three, I believe, where he talks about this is the day that he created Eden, the Garden of Eden, in the region of Eden. So where it was placed on the earth that Adam interacted with it, it was placed, it was created and placed there on day three. So before the sun and the moon had lit up the earth yet, he put this special place that has its own walled off area. And, and we'll, I'm going to do an entire video on this in the future, guys. And this is where he put Eden un, down underneath the second layer of the ferment on day two and in, into our level where we live in special and closed off area that was called the garden. So in Jubilees 2, 5 through 8, it says, On the third day he commanded the waters to pass off the face of the whole earth into one place, and the dry land appeared. And the waters did so as he commanded them, and they retired from off the face of the earth into one place outside of this firmament, and the dry land appeared. And on that day he created for them all the seas according to their separate gathering places, and all the rivers, and the gatherings of the waters and the mountains, and on all the earth, and all the lakes, and all the dew of the earth, and the seed which is sown, and all sprouting things, and fruit-bearing trees, and the trees of the wood, and the garden of Eden, in Eden, and all plants after their kind. These four great works God created on the third day. So I'm trying to give more setting, guys. More setting. And we got a we got a comment here that um, this is a good a good comment. If it, it looks like he's following along, he says there's no sun and moon, but there is light. And this is what I was talking about: the light that's created on day one in Genesis chapter uh, one, two through five. That's the light that we read about in Jubilees chapter two, two, the dawn and the day. And we see that is the light of immortality, the light that lights up the layers above us that doesn't need the sun and the moon. That was created on day one. It's the light of the spirit of God. What's also in second Thessalonians five referred to as the light of immortality. It is what we're promised to be illumined with revelation two, uh, 22 verse four and five. Once we're resurrected and taken into the kingdom, this is what we're promised to be illumined with is the light of immortality. And it and it's not just an amenic phrase. I mean, we live forever. It also literally means a light that we can exude, just like we see the angels do if they want to. Um, and just like that radiant glow was left over on Moses' face when he came down from Sinai. So this is the type of illuminating light that that happens Um when you're glorified basically and all the angels above and all those layers they live they have access to that ability so this is why it's on day one that light was made and there's a difference between we're children of the day as first as second thessalonians chapter 5 8 explains and not children of the night and that's an idiomatic reference to being children of the day children of the light children of the immortality who do the commandments of god versus children of the dark that do deeds of wickedness and destruction and disaster those are children of the night or children of the dark, right? All right. So real quick, though, um, we're just getting a setting here that this is day three was when the Garden of Eden was put in. This is why many of you have heard me already talk about in the past in other videos. Um, Second Ezra 7, 
25th and 26th, it tells us that the Garden of Eden is what was withdrawn from the earth and it's going to come back as the New Jerusalem. Says, and therefore, Ezra is for the empty or empty things and for the full or full things. Behold, the time shall come that these tokens which I have told you shall come to pass and the bride shall appear and she coming forth shall be seen that now is withdrawn from the earth. So this is, and again, that's a whole nother separate video we've done in the past and I'm, I can do one again in the future, but just explaining how the Garden of Eden goes from being on the ground to the garden to being withdrawn and then it's going to come it's being enlarged isaiah 49 14 through, through 21 and then it's going to come back down as the new jerusalem so that's big enough to facilitate everyone that takes part in the first resurrection and, and inherits it so this is this literally the father's trying to get us back to the garden first enoch 65 one through five many of you are probably saying oh, wait a minute okay so the garden was on the ground and therefore this is this is the setting. This is the placement. There's a walled off special place underneath the firmament that Adam wakes up to. And that's what he's taken into. It's still there in the days of Noah. And it's my theory from all the verses I'll put together in a future video that it's retracted just either the, the during the flood or right before the flood, because this is where excuse me, Enoch is taken to when he's withdrawn from men and goes spends 300 years with the angels. Because as we've already seen in the book of Jubilees, the angels were inside the ark or inside the garden of Eden, helping Adam and Eve do what they need to do in there and teaching them commandment from the Lord. So when they were kicked out, Genesis three twenty four and Jubilees chapter two, 25 through 28, or excuse me, uh, Jubilees chapter three, 25 through 28, when they were kicked out, the garden, that special place guys that we looked at, is still on the ground. It's still there. So this means pre-flood, the antediluvian world is populating and growing with this thing in the backdrop, with this thing in their midst. And this is what Enoch is talking about in 1 Enoch 65, 1 through 5, where it says, In those days Noah saw the earth that it had sunk down and its destruction was nigh, which it means it's close. And he arose from there and went to the ends of the earth and he cried aloud to his grandfather Enoch. Now, guys, this is where translation in English comes in. The, the word earth in haretz is, uh, excuse me, the word earth in, in Hebrew is haretz, right? The haretz. So this is where the context helps you understand what, what does it mean by ends of the earth? Did he go to the edge of the firmament that was created in the ends of the earth there? No, because we already are told in Jubilees chapter three where Enoch was placed. And I'm going to read that verse in just a minute. So we understand that Enoch is in the garden, separated from mankind. Uh, for a specific purpose and Noah's alive. And I'm going to do a whole video on a milk and meat in the following weeks to show you the timeline of how Noah is still alive and able to have this conversation with Enoch. So Noah after has a disturbing dream about the flood that's coming and the massive topographical changes from the earth and all the violent earthquakes and the shifting of the land. He's afraid he gets up and he runs to his grandfather Enoch. And he says three times in a bittered voice, hear me, hear me, hear me. And I said unto him, this is Enoch replying, Tell me what it is that has fallen out on the earth. Or excuse me, uh, Noah's saying to him, and I said to him, tell me what it is that's fallen out on the earth, that the earth is in such evil plight and shaken, lest perchance I shall perish with it. And thereupon was a great commotion on the earth, and the voice was heard from heaven, and I fell on my face. And Enoch, my grandfather, came and stood by me and said to me, why have you cried unto me with a bitter cry and weeping? So guys, 
the whole concept of Enoch being taken by God and living amongst the angels for three years is explained to us in the book of Jubilees and in the book of Enoch. He's not above the firmament in heaven. This guy hasn't died yet. He's still a mortal person and he lives a longer lifespan. Uh, again, it's a whole video, but he's with the angels in the Garden of Eden because it's still there on the ground. That's how he goes and gets separated from amongst mankind. This is how Noah runs up to the ends of the earth, the ends of the land. That word haretz in Hebrew also means land. It doesn't mean the entire plane of the earth. He runs to the ends of the land, and that's be the end of the Garden of Eden. He runs to the edge, basically, of the wall of the Garden of Eden. This thing runs to the edge of this and shouts, Enoch, I had this crazy dream. Help me. What's going to go on? Am I going to die? And Enoch comes to explain what's going to happen. Jubilee chapter 4, 21 through 25. And he was moreover with the angels of God, six jubilees of years, that's 300 years. And they showed him everything which is on earth and in the heavens, the rule of the sun. He wrote down everything. He testified to the watchers who had sinned with the daughters of men, for these had begun to unite themselves so as to be defiled with the daughters of men. And Enoch testified against them all. And he was taken from amongst the children of men, and we conducted him into the Garden of Eden in majesty and honor. And behold, there he writes down the condemnation and judgment of the world and all the wickedness of the children of men. And on account of it, God brought the waters of the flood upon all the land of Eden. For there he was set as a sign that he should testify against all the children of men, that he should recount all the deeds of the generations until the day of condemnation. He's not still alive, guys. The day of condemnation in the context is referring to the flood accounts. Okay, Jubilee 7 and Jubilee 10 tell us that he died. And I'll, again, stick with me. I'll go over the, the, the life of Enoch in a future video. It says that he burnt incense of the sanctuary, even sweet spices, acceptable before the Lord on the mount. Uh, if you've never read the book of Jubilees, go back and read the whole chapter. It's amazing. But he's telling you right here, and this is the same sanctuary that's in the Garden of Eden, that in Jubilees chapter 3, verse 28, Adam burnt incense of that uh, on that altar in that sanctuary before he left, before he and Adam and Eve were kicked out. So this gives you this idea, guys, that the land within the Garden of Eden, it's it's... It has more to it than just um, than just what we think, right? Than just these picture storybook uh, images that we've been given all of our life. And in fact, in the book of Enoch, in a, a specific area where he's getting a tour of heaven and of the kingdom of God, he, and I think it's in chapter 42, Enoch sees the abode or the houses of the angels. Okay, so remember what I, what I said at the very beginning, there's livable land by the angels where they, they're real people. They, they eat, they do the feasts. They, they, uh, they have missions. They come to the earth. They go back to the heaven. These are real tangible creatures that can interact with us. They're just made of a different physics. Therefore they're able to traverse the levels of creation better than we can. All right. And once, as we're promised at the resurrection, once we get those types of bodies, we'll then be able to be, go to the top layer and see the father and hang out next to the father if we want to, um, and hang out with the angels. Okay. Uh, we also will be able to inherit this actual kingdom of heaven, which was originally called the garden. Okay. So this is taking place on the outer wall of what's going on. A conversation between Noah and Enoch is taking place on the outer wall of the garden of Eden before the flood happens. So take that scenario in your brain and fill it back into our picture where there was just a dirty aquarium with unformed earth. So now we've got on day three, we've got an earth that has a encapsulation to it as the firmament. And it also has the garden of Eden set down in the middle of it. And that's already created, but now we need a sun and moon because it's still without light. This is where day four, the father comes in and says, all right, I'll make the sun and the moon. 
so that there, it can have light upon the earth for signs and seasons, days and years. Also for Moedims, right? For the feasts. So then suddenly when there's a sun and moon made, there's a sun to, to shine upon the earth um, and upon the waters. Look at, look at that amazing shadow or that amazing reflection of the sun on the waters. It's super straight. You ever wonder what would cause that? It'd be impossible if you were looking um, at a curved water surface. Also, the light of the moon shines upon the on the oceans now, right? Because they're made on day four. And also the beautiful stars are set in the firmament to shine down on the earth specifically. These luminaries that are described in Genesis 1, 14 through 18, they're not to light up the heavens above. That's not their purpose. It's to light us. It's to give us indication of signs, seasons, feast days, and years. So now we have the lights of the of the sun and moon and also the stars to be over the waters and also the formed land. Okay, so then we go into day five. And we see that this beautiful, lush landscape has form, has function, it has proper lighting. And he's going to create all the animals within it, both in the seas and also within um, the land, right? All the land animals. And then on day six, many of you know the story. Here we come. This is our turn. Mankind is being created from the dust of the earth. Okay? Breathe the spirit of life into him. So guys, think about this, this image right here. We've got multiple layers of heaven over the layer where we live. This is the, this is the setting. This is the placement that Adam wakes up to. This is the room that he wakes up to. Multiple layers where angels live above him. He is created outside the Garden of Eden, as we're told, and then he's placed into the Garden of Eden. Not, not only do we do we infer that from Genesis 3.24, but we're literally told that from Jubilees chapter 3, where it says they waited 40 days for the angels to bring him into the Garden of Eden according to the law of the Lord. And if you want to know what law that is, go check out Leviticus 12. They also, when Eve was created a week later, they waited 80 days to bring her into the Garden of Eden also according to the law of the Lord because there is they had to be purified before they could come into a pure set-apart area. Right, so this is a, a this is the setting and the framework for which we get Genesis one, for which the creation of mankind, all ordered with intentionality, and this is what Adam wakes up to. So then, when he's naming all the animals and interacting with that, with Eve, and they're in the garden for seven years uh, before Cain is is uh, born, just as Jubilees tells us. This is, this is what's going on. This is the setting that Adam and Eve had for seven years in their introduction to all of creation before they were kicked out of the garden. They knew there was livable land outside of the garden, but they knew the garden itself was a special place that was created that they could cohabitate in as long as they kept the rules, right? They did the law that was, that was commanded of them and instructed of them. So this is where um, you even have inferences in Jubilees chapter three that the angels talked about how they taught Adam how to tend the garden and how to set aside residue. And that's an inference to Deuteronomy 18, where they would be keeping first fruits, which makes sense to Genesis 4, 1 through, 1 through 8, where we see Cain and Abel being taught how to bring first fruits. That's because Adam and Eve taught them what that was. And the angels taught them what that was because that is it's the eternal law of God. And it's the Garden of Eden is his house and his rules are kept in his house. It's just, it's simple. But so this is why we would say, in creation, there's no place like home, guys. There is no place like what I described to you. That is not being taught in secular schools, public and private. 
They're teaching an evolutionary heliocentric globe model of a random exploding chaotic space with, with dirt forming itself into balls and magically life appears. Although they have no actual evidence of this, it's all inference based off of speculation. This model that we're talking here, we can prove and test. We can, we can literally recreate it. If you have the time and the money, you can rec not the size of it, obviously, but you can recreate all the basic descriptions of it. There's literally one, I think is in it, put it in the chat guys. Is the dome is the uh, biodome in Arizona or New Mexico? I can't remember, but they've, they've literally created a version of what we live in on, on level two already. And we, if we had a big enough building, we could create the same thing on levels above us for six levels above us. So this, this concept here that's being described in Genesis one after six days of creation. Thank you, Joe Decker. He's saying it's in New Mexico. Thank you, brother. Um, this is what's being created. This is the, the setting that Adam wakes up to. So the rest of the story is going to take place in a beautiful, beautiful, organized creation that the almighty, the magnificent, almighty, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, this is what was planned, teeming with angelic life on six levels and then teeming with animal and, um, and sea life and then mankind on our level. It is beautiful, guys. It's beautiful. It's, this, this is worth young minds who are being told that they're created by a loving God. This is worth knowing. So if you had this idea here in your head and then you're being told that you live on a ball that's going around the, you know, the sun and um, in an elliptical fashion, and even when you're 3 million miles closer to the sun, you don't feel a heat change that wouldn't burn you off the face of the earth. And there's so, so many problems with the globe model, even though the stars are in the same place all the time. There's so, so many problems. Uh, there's entire channels on YouTube dedicated to showing the problems of the globe model. Uh, many of you in my audience have seen those before. But the point is, if you're in the church setting and you're watching this and you're preaching an evolutionary style heliocentric model out of Genesis 1, you're not preaching what the words say. You're preaching what you've been indoctrinated to believe in spite of what the words say. And this is why there's rampant confusion. And the person that's listening to the young impressionable mind of the children and the youths that are listening to you, who will not be listening to you once they leave for college. That's why they're leaving the faith because they can't even trust page one. Do you, do you guys know this whole setting is what happened? This whole setting matters to the Messiah and Yeshua and his second coming, his first and second coming, right? Was remember the voice that came from heaven? This is my son, Luke chapter nine. Remember when he's baptized, it says the heavens opened. What, what, these are real things. These are real things that are happening. These are real words with real definitions. So whenever the Messiah himself is preaching and explaining how this, this model of the firmament with multiple lands and multiple levels is going to be used when he comes back on his second coming, if the person you're preaching to doesn't understand these definitions of the words from page one, how are they going to believe and understand the message of the Messiah to give them hope and encouragement and faith? How are they going to even understand the resurrection if they don't get it that, that they need to have a different body to be on another level than we live? 
an incredibly deceptive teaching that has crept into the church is to ignore the actual definitions and the context of the words in Genesis 1 and to start preaching a ball in space and try to make it fit with those words. And all the mental gymnastics that goes with it, it does nothing but puts doubt in the minds of the young believers that are listening to these people. So, guys, this is why <laughs> I get so passionate about this. And I'm the fundamentalist because this is 13 and a half million kids every year. Think about it. So how many of you guys put in the chat? How many of you guys heard the conversation we're trying to explain to them, the biblical cosmology and you people will return fellow believers will respond to you say, Oh, it just, what does it matter? It's not the message of Jesus Christ. What does it matter? Well, guys, now you can tell them 13 and a half million souls. That's what matters. That's how much it matters. The deception of the globe has literally swayed away from statistics that have been proven in surveys. The deception of the globe model and all the science that's built into the evolutionary heliocentric model has swayed away 13 and a half million souls from the faith because of that deceptive teaching. It, it matters 100%, guys. 100%. Um, Let's look at the chat real quick. Um, let me see here. Looks like Kingdom Truther is saying it's uh, critical, critical to know the proper setting. Then the Bible makes even more sense. The pieces start to fit together. That's right. Uh, the line within us is saying the first thing described by God and his word is where we live. It's the loving thing to do and absolutely beautiful. Yeah, exactly right. All right. Aaron G., I'm not sure if you're talking to me or someone else in the chat. I think I see you talking to someone else in the chat. But if you're talking to me, go ahead and um, put at kingdom in context. And, uh, cause if, if you're talking to me, then there's a ton of ways that we can prove it, but it, that's, the, that's not the problem. That's exactly what I've been saying tonight is that it can be, it won't be accepted because from, from childhood, people are being taught a completely different model. All right. I'm gonna look and see if there's some questions here. And it looks like we've got one from Jubion Kenobi that says, how does answers in Genesis define the firmament? They define it as an expanse. So they don't believe the actual solid structure concept. They think it's the, the vastness of space, basically. And they think uh, like a traditional heliocentric interpretation. We'll talk about the atmosphere above as the first layer of heaven, the space and the stars and everything is a, as a second layer of heaven. And then the unseen realm of God and, and truly heaven is the third layer of heaven. And basically what that would mean in a practical sense is that you're teaching space Jesus that the kingdom of God, this massive literal city defined as the New Jerusalem, that's 1,500 square miles squared and tall, is going to be coming down from the sky in Revelation 21, and all the earth sees it and sit down on the ground. If the evolutionary heliocentric model is true, that means Jesus and the angels are space traveling with a huge continent-sized city, and they're going to be bringing it down to the earth. And many of you guys have already seen the incredible models that uh, show the size of the New Jerusalem compared to the size of the Earth, and it just like it would, it would completely throw us off our axis and our tilt and mess us up in our orbit. It would just be ridiculous. It doesn't fit. The model doesn't fit. This again, this is Dorothy inside the you know the the Death Star, with with Luke and Vader, right? It doesn't fit. This two narratives are two contrasting narratives. You can take the the uh, evolutionary creation narrative and line it up next to the Genesis narrative, they're exactly opposite. They're 100% contradictory. So this is where we look at the definition of words and keep things in context. Um, let me see here. I think we've got another quick question. 
Um, Clay Linhart says, how do satellites work then? Do they orbit the Earth? Uh, no, they don't. They orbit, if they're not the Google Loon Project, if they're not just high-altitude uh, balloons. And if you've never looked up the Google Loon Project, you, you need, should do that when you get off this, this broadcast. Um, or the idea of the Starlink that SpaceX is developing, um, that Elon Musk is developing. But this idea that there are things up in the sky that they can put up there and, and for an extended period of time, this has been proven within modern advancements um, with aeronautics. It's not big. It's not a big deal. They can put stuff up there. It's not going above the ferment. Like I just showed you in the models, we're enclosed, we're encapsulated in our own area and that nothing gets above the ferment because you can't exist up in those layers. This is Enoch chapter 15, where the father is explaining to the angels and to Enoch that those things that are made in the heaven above are made intended to live and exist in the heaven above. Those made and created on the earth below are supposed to live in the earth below. This is why Yeshua explains to us in the resurrection, why we need a new body in order to um, be taken on the day of the Lord to the new Jerusalem, which has yet to descend, right? Which is above the firmament because we can't live up there in our mortal flesh without it, without, um, excuse me, we can't, ex we can't ascend past the firmament without uh, a new immortal flesh. This is why Yeshua talked about ascending and he only ascended to the father after he was given his glorified body, because as he promises us in Luke 20, 36, he then is given a body like the angels, one that has a different higher capability. It's made of water and spirit instead of dirt and spirit. So um, all of it plays together, guys, the creation model with the resurrection, with the coming kingdom, with Messiah's return, all of it plays together. It's the same narrative. It's the same story. So we can't start changing the details of the beginning of the book. Otherwise, the story starts falling apart. Um, but yeah, there's a ton of different ways they can put up fake satellites and high altitude balloons and different things. And they've done this for a long time. So it just takes researching it. M many people come to this topic and they, they kind of get uh, upset real quick because they just truly haven't researched it because there's so much indoctrination since childhood, literally since you were a baby in a crib staring up at your your little, what are those things called? I can never remember what those things are called. The little things you put above a baby in a crib. Like many times it's a little solar system model, you know, that's spinning above the baby in the crib. All the cartoons, all the movies, all the TVs, all the TV shows, all of it is indoctrinated since birth to get you to believe in a model that is 100% contradictory to scripture. Is it any wonder by the time you're 18, you leave your parents' household and you go and you get hit and bombarded with all this information that reinforces that model. And then suddenly you're leaving the faith at 71%. There's no coincidence, guys. This is an orchestrated planned attack by the enemy to doubt God's word and therefore get people to leave faith in the creator. It's, it's truly simple. It's, you know, Revelation 12, it's Satan who deceives the whole world. It's that simple. All right, we got another question. Um, Richard Merritt's asking, doesn't Job chapter one explain leaders of different worlds? Is there sinless life on other planets? Richard, I'm not sure if you just got to the broadcast, but um, we're explaining the firmament model of, of creation, biblical cosmology. So there's not other planets. Okay. There's, there's um, Job chapter one does not explain that in any regard. I'm not sure exactly the verse you're referring to, but if you want to drop the verse that you're thinking of, I can look at it. But I know in, in a general premise, it's not that that would be what we call a malformed question. Okay, guys, let me see here. Let's see if there's any other quick questions. Um, let me check my admins. Thank you, moderators, for sending me the questions. I really appreciate it. 
All right, let me see. Yeah, mobiles. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the mobiles that you put over your crib uh, when you're a kid. I, I can never remember those words. All right, guys. So does everyone understand that when we go to talk about the ideas of scripture and context with fellow believers and we look at we look at stuff like Genesis 1, how atheists standing on the outside and agnostics and those who are on the fence and whether they believe in God or not, they look in and they see just ridiculousness. They see illogical conversations happening because the atheist can pick the book up and read it and says that it's describing a, a model of creation that is not a heliocentric ball in space. You see what I'm saying? In fact, I even did, um, I have a video on my channel and it's when I was being interviewed by the atheist from Pine Creek, that gentleman, Doug, um, he, that's what he said. He was like, you know, what do you, I, I can't remember his exact question, but he asked me about Genesis one about creation. Cause he, well, that was one of the reasons why he asked to interview me because he had saw me speaking with inspiring philosophy and how that gentleman was kind of getting triggered when I mentioned the actual literal descriptions of the firmament because he doesn't believe them. And so Doug, from Pine Creek is an atheist watching two believers talk about scripture. And then once those two believers get to a specific chapter called Genesis one, that conversation falls apart because one of them doesn't believe the words that are in the book. And this is a, this is a, this is astounding, right? Like they atheists already make fun of Christians because they think that we believe nonsensical things, right? We believe in a virgin birth. We believe in floating ax head. We believe in a talking donkey. We believe in, you know, angels, right? We believe in resurrection. They, they atheists already mock everything about Christianity and the belief in, in a creator and his son, Jesus of Nazareth, because they think we believe in stuff that's nonsensical, can't be proven. And here we are, we get to the literal definition of a structure and, and an entire chapter dedicated to explaining the structure and they're reading and going, man, that's, that's not explaining a ball in space. That's explaining a house, a structure with multiple levels. And then they see Christians arguing about, does it really mean that? No, it must mean a ball in space. And they just think it's lunacy. They're confused and rightly so because Christians have been deceived for so long and believed that they need to suddenly reinterpret Genesis one. The moment they start reading it, it is utter deception guys. It is the opposite of reading comprehension. Okay. It is the opposite of, of clear logical thinking when you're reading the text. It's sad. It's really sad. Um, Looks like we've got a, um, oh, we got a super chat. Thanks. Thanks, Angela. I appreciate that. And then um, looks like Joe Decker got a, gave me a sticker. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that means. Super sticker. I don't, I don't know if that's what you typed or if that's what YouTube offers. So I don't know because YouTube's always changing stuff, but thank you both gentlemen. I appreciate that. That's awesome. All right. looks like Corey Fowler is asking what percent of NASA SpaceX employees know the truth in your opinion? Um, well, if, I mean, this is where it gets kind of dicey, man, because I've never spoken with them. So I could not really answer that, um, uh, with any, with any definity. It's about compartmentalization. You know what I'm saying? You can have a, I mean, there is, um, I can't remember her name. Uh, Cindy, there's a lady that's, uh, she's, she's on my Facebook. I need to have her on the show sometime. And she used to work for NASA as an independent contractor. She worked on the SR-71 Blackbird, if I'm not mistaken. And she was a, a formerly part of the Air Force and then contracted with NASA for, so I think it was 10 years. And, you know, she's not 
going in space. She's not meeting astronauts. She's not, you know, at mission control and, and looking at the, the specs of information or, or any of that stuff. Right. She's not as a part of the film crew or, I should say the CGI crew. Um, she was none of that. She was just a contractor, but yet she's an employee at NASA for 10 years. And she only worked on a specific project. And when she was done, she'd hand her stuff off to somebody else who then took it to somebody else who took it to somebody else. Guys, if you're not familiar with how the army works or the military works, it's, it's compartmentalization. It's super easy concept of just, yes, thank you, West Blaze. Her name is Cindy Holland. Um, it's a super easy concept of people that can work at these places and they can, they don't have to know the full truth. I mean, they're just doing a job. You know what I mean? They're doing a job of like, oh, I need to build this part that is supposed to do this, right? That's supposed to help determine this within another system. It doesn't mean that they have any clue about whether or not that thing is truly going to fly in space or not. Guys, there's a there's an incredible, I need to, again, I need to do more shows like this as much as I can. And uh, we're getting a heavy, heavy storm right now. So if my broadcast breaks out, I'm sorry. But we, um, I need to do another show like this where I go over actual testimonies from folks because there's a gentleman out there that builds valves and seals. He's an industrial valve and seal expert, and he has a long testimony about his professional 25-year history. Actually, this was back in 2016, so he's like, you know, if he's still doing it, he's, he's had a longer career than that. But He's in it for over two decades in industrial valves and seals. And he says there is, it's an impossibility for the ISS to exist and space shuttles to exist the way that, that they say it does, because there's no way to create an enclosed atmosphere with the utter vacuum of, of outside the craft with the windows and, and the doors being sealed properly, because you need atmosphere on both sides of the window to create the proper seal. He's like, it's just, it's a physical impossibility for what they do. But yet, what's this guy going to say? Who's he going to tell? Like, what what does his voice matter when he's trying to tell friends and family? They're just going to look at him like he's crazy, right? Because why? We get an entire production, a TV production about all this. Oh, they must be going off to space. Look, it looks like it on the TV. As if we've never seen CGI before. As if we've never seen a stage show. As if we've never seen a magic show where there's literal physical things happening. We just can't explain how it's happening because it's trickery that has lots of planning involved into it. You see what I'm saying? And that's what we're watching when we when we all of our lives have been shown space. We're watching a magic show. Um, oh, it looks like we got a, another super chat. Ore Vasquez. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. That's awesome of you. Um, looks like Bobby Mo says, next thing you're teaching kids, a little red fat guy sneaks into your house once a year to give you whatever you want. Exactly right. Yeah, this is the idea of myths and legend and lore is rampant in pagan nations and this is just a the whole concept of the evolutionary thing that's been built up for hundreds of years and has been now portrayed with the the medium of tv and movie making it's just another way of perpetuating a myth and a lore that children can be taught and not question because they're too young for critical thinking they can't question all the details of why that you know international space station can be 250 miles above the earth in practically zero environment and have its seals work on its windows. They don't know to question that. They're three years old. And so they grow up seeing images that they think are legitimate, and therefore they never question it. So this is how indoctrination works. Um, and yeah, Josh Pressick, it's also called sorcery. Yeah, exactly. But like I said before, it's, you know, 
it's the Revelation 12, it's Satan who deceives the whole world. Richard Merritt's asking about Job chapter 1, 6 through 8. Let me go check it out real quick, brother. I don't have every single verse memorized, so I want to make sure I'm hitting the right one for you. It says, um, okay, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came along also with them. And then the Lord said unto Satan, uh, where comest thou? And Satan said to the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And I think your previous question was, is this pertaining to rulers on different planets? No, no. These are just angels in the heaven above. Like I said, check out the beginning of the broadcast. I think you got here late. Uh, check the beginning of the broadcast. I explained the different levels that were created on day one of the firmament above us. And that's where all the angels live. So, um, light of the world ministries, light of the hill ministries is saying, would like to hear someone who is a physics major. Talk to you about it. Yeah. That'd be awesome. If you guys know someone that's willing to come on and talk to me about it, I will hundred percent do it. In fact, a few years ago I was uh, at a job. This is 2017, I believe. And I was, uh, had a, one of my customers that came in and he was a physics, uh, professor. And I asked him, I said, man, have you ever seen an experiment in all of academia in your career that has a air chamber, like a vacuum chamber, and inside of it, they have a ball that they spin while, the, while it has zero you know, atmosphere inside the vacuum chamber. And then you can watch atmospheric particles like nitrogen and helium and oxygen come to that ball and stick to that, that spinning ball inside a vacuum chamber and, and persist like that. Have you ever seen any experiment like that? And he looked at me for a minute and he was thinking about what I described. And he goes, that's, that's impossible. I said, exactly. But yet that's what they tell us we live on. It cannot be replicated in, in known physics and chemistry. It is literally unscientific at its most core definition, but that's what we're told we live on guys. It's an utter contradiction to the word of God in Genesis one. All right, guys. Um, I think I'll take just a couple more questions uh, before we take off. I think we're about to get to the end of the broadcast here. And um, let me see here. Looks like Jay Savoy is asking, in kingdom context, do you hold a partial prejudice view or a futurist view of Matthew 24 and Revelation? Um, I'm not definitely not a, a prejudiced or a partial preterist. I'm definitely, I don't know how you're defining the word futurist. Um, but I can just definitively tell you, I'm in no way a preterist, uh, whether full or partial. And, and I don't know if you've been on our channel for a long time, but you're welcome to check out our playlist. It is called the road to rescue. Okay. It's under my playlist, under the channel. And if you have some extra time tonight or tomorrow, we have several videos there. And the first series in that playlist is a three-part series called the day of the Lord. And I go over a lot of scriptures. And back, my buddy Ken Heidebreck from Hanging on His Words, he, he helps me out. We go over a lot of scriptures about the, the return of Christ and what it means in context. Um, because it, it, I mean, preterism is literally easily dismantled if you understand all the Old Testament prophecies about the day of the Lord. Also, they're littered within Second Ezra, the Book of Jubilees, First Enoch. Um, they're all over the place. So this is where, in my opinion, every preterist I've run into is unaware of the prophecies of the Old Testament. They do not know their Old Testament very well. So this is, um, and I say that with all love and respect, but that's my experience so far. So, all right, guys, let's see. Um, let's 
Let's see if I can see one, one last question real quick. Uh, you're welcome, Bobby Mo. Yeah, man, hopefully some of these answers are helping. <laughs> hey, guys, real quick. Speaking of um, Job chapter one, do you guys want to see something that uh, not a lot of people talk about? Let's see if we can pull this over here and I can screen share it. All right, look at Job chapter one, guys. This passage I just read where the angels come before God. So there was a day when the angels came before God. Let's let's look at this a little bit, right? Let's dig for some context of what's going on here. Let's look at the Septuagint. It says, and it came to pass on a day. What does that mean? On a day. Look at this. Job chapter 2. And it came to pass on a certain day. What does this mean? Why? That the angels came to stand before the Lord. Guys, you guys know what this is? Do you remember me always telling you about how the angels follow the law in heaven? Um, Exodus 23, 17, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord, your God. What you're reading in, in Job one and two, in my opinion, are the angels specifically coming forward on feast days as, as appointed in the law and they're all the angels are male according to Jubilees 15, 27. So they're following the law of God and in this passage that we just read from Job, when those angels come forward to present themselves to the Lord, because that's part of the Torah, and this is why Romans seven chapter uh, Romans chapter seven one through four, it talks about Christ is going to present us to the Father, right, so that we can be presented to Christ, because that was what you'd present yourself to the high priest. He can then you know present you to the Lord, so to speak, at the doorway of the tent of meeting. This same process of the law that happens at the feast days would also be happening three times a year. This is the whole purpose of the cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. Now you had to be clean. You couldn't have sex for three days. You could have, you know, you had to do this or that. You had to be clean to come before the Father, um, to be presented before the Father. Just like we we talked about earlier from Jubilees, uh, where Jubilees chapter three, where both Adam and Eve had to wait, according to Leviticus twelve, according to the law for men and women, they had to wait to be brought into the Garden of Eden because that's where the priesthood of the angels were, so they can then be presented to the father. So guys, it's, <laughs> it's amazing, right? Even in Job, the book of Job, we're seeing the law of God and played out in heaven. It's beautiful. All right. I guess that was just a little, I could be another show. It's a little bonus, but um, I'm looking for one last question. Otherwise we'll, we'll say good night. I appreciate everybody for joining me tonight. Hopefully this has been edifying. Hopefully there's some good things. It uh, looks like NEG. I think you're definitely new to our channel. We, we talk about Jubilees in great detail on our channel. We've actually done, uh, several episodes um, on Honor Kings, our series where we look at Jubilees and we test it. Um, yes, Jubilees does not have any contradictions that cannot be easily reconciled once you understand the, the Torah, because Jub Jubilees is explaining the Torah. So for everyone that, and I respectfully, I know there's other ministries out there that think there are contradictions, but you have to listen very carefully to their arguments. And what it reveals is you, the Torah is not being understood very well. So this is where we lovingly try to share the Torah every time someone has a problem with Jubilees. And that's where, um, all right, guys, there you go. All right. Sorry. That's where, um, th there is Jubilees is an amazing book that exp explains so much from Genesis through Deuteronomy, but you have to know Genesis through Deuteronomy first. 
to understand, to, to be able to line up and realize just how much it explains. So this is, this is where the, t- the contention comes in with sometimes with other folks. So, but it's a great question. Energy. Yeah. Um, all right. I think I saw one last question and it says, Karen C says, do you think it took 10 days to ascend to the father? No, no, I don't. I don't think it did. Is there a book? Is there like a Gnostic gospel? You're, is that like, is that the gospel of Nicodemus that talks about that? Um, yeah, you'll have to, I don't know if you're not pulling that from, um, from acts. I know that. So it may be another, another writing or another text you're getting that idea from, but no, in my understanding, it did not, it did not take 10 days. He could just be there that day if you wanted to. So. All right, guys. I really appreciate everybody. Um, this is here's Jay Savoy. He's saying he's new on the channel. Uh, thank you, brother. Thanks for joining us. And he he found me via via Zen Garcia. So, in case anyone missed that uh, last Friday, Zen and I had a discussion over uh, one of his favorite theories, which is called Serpent Seed. And we're gonna have part two of that discussion on July third. So join us for part two. And uh, Jay Savoy, um, I hope I'm saying your last name right. Thanks for joining us, brother. Uh, we strive on this channel to keep things in context. Okay. So I'm going to go to my channel real quick, just as a quick introduction. If you've not seen my, my video about uh, what we do, I put it on my, on my actual channel and I can, let me see where to go. View as a new visitor. Here we go. Nope. That's not it either. Sorry. One second. One second. Where did that go? Hmm. Strange. Um, I was going to show you something real quick, guys, but we we have a context tree. Let me see if I can pull it up. That we all of the the things and all of the major themes in Scripture we teach on and help people understand. Try to break down the Scriptures as simply as possible. Um, and this is how we do it. We have an actual guide that we follow. Now, of course, I do videos on all types of things as you're as you're seeing. But even like tonight's video will be under the creation model. So let me show you what that looks like. Okay, bud. This is our context tree that we created before we start our channel. And New Jerusalem's at the bottom because it's the foundation of themes. These are all themes. Okay. And when you're reading a book and you find the thematic elements of the book, these are the themes that I've after 20 something years of studying the scriptures. I've come to realize that the Bible is full of these reoccurring themes over and over, and they're interconnected. Okay. So the New Jerusalem is the caveat that is underpinning everything, as we talked about tonight, right? It's the garden that's going to return. Uh, we've got the timelines, and that's a point of context that you it's really important to understand. You have the first resurrection event. That's a huge point of context to understand lots of scripture that's tied together. The creation model, as we discussed a little bit tonight, the garden. We talked about that tonight, the son of the father. We referenced him a little bit tonight, how he uses both the garden and the creation model at the first resurrection. Sheol, we didn't talk about that tonight, but that also we read about it in Jubilees 2, too, because that was made on day one as well. The priesthoods, we talked a little bit about that tonight, about how Adam's first interaction with the priesthood was the angels that were inside the garden instructing him on what to do. The eternal Torah, we talked about that just just a few minutes ago with Job chapter one and two. The Nephilim, we didn't talk about that tonight. That's uh, that'll be for another time. We I have several videos on that on the channel though. Most of these branches, like the covenants, the polyon, the bride, the return of the king, most all these thematic elements on the tree, we in these are these are things that you run into every scripture and book that you go into over and over and over and over 
these are the things that you're reading about. You just don't have, these are just titles, if you will, that we've given these themes that people find over and over and over again. And if you understand that every book in the scripture that you're reading, you're going to run into one of these 11 or 12 themes. It's so much easier to understand. Like it just makes it super easy because you realize it's all the same information reinforced and re-explained from a variety of different ways under these thematic elements. Okay. So like the return of the King, that's everywhere in scripture. It's a huge part of prophecy. Um, the bride, that's what we just read from second Ezra seven, 25 and 26 tonight, the bride that will appear. It's revelation 21, nine and 10. It's, it is the return of the new of the Garden of Eden. It's called the New Jerusalem. So, and then of course the New Jerusalem itself, and all the descriptions in the Scripture that talk about what life will be like in the Kingdom of God, which is called the New Jerusalem, as well as all the descriptions of the land inside of it, and what's going like Isaiah thirty three is beautiful. Um, I mean, the entire Torah will be the behavior and the constitution within that kingdom. This whole book, guys, is constantly explaining the same ideas over and over and over. And if you understand what those thematic elements and ideas are, it makes reading the scriptures super easy. Okay. In the fact, in the in the future, I'm I'm when I have the time, Lord willing, uh, there's a pet project I want to create as a Bible that has color coding in every book in the Bible, and it show each color will relate to one of these themes. So then you can just know, oh, this passage is about the resurrection. Oh, this passage is about the covenants. Oh, this passage is about, you know, the priesthoods, you know, and just try to make uh, like a, an easier reading Bible to help you understand context. So, all right, guys, um, I appreciate everyone being here tonight. And uh, thank you for your participation. Thanks for, for keeping it chill. I know not everybody um, is fully on board with understanding Genesis 1 as I explained it tonight. So thank you for keeping the fruits of the spirit. And you guys are awesome. Um, we're all family. We just can't be in the same room. <laughs> so we're doing this, this internet thing. So love you guys. Appreciate you all for being here and, uh, go, go, uh, subscribe to, um, kingdom cast, if you will. And it's, uh, it's on my channel under the recommended channels. And that way, um, I can do live streaming from over there in the future. And I'll let us, uh, I'll let us, uh, end tonight with our brother from hanging on his words. This is Ken Heidebrecht. And he has a separate music channel that he has called mountains into the sea. He produces amazing worship uh, Christian music. And here's just a snippet of a new release he's going to be putting out uh, here soon. If I saw the world through the eyes of the Father above, would I reconsider the whole plan? Can I send my son? Place that rejects.